If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the second book of Thessalonians. Written by the Apostle Paul to a small group of believers in Thessaloniki, Greece. Paul had preached there for about three weeks and then he had to go. Put a leader in charge of the group and pretty soon they start going off the rails as you might expect. If you'd been three weeks since you first heard the gospel... How prepared would you have been to lead the group? So, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul gave them some instruction to put them back on the rails to get them going straight down the path. Only they misunderstood some of the things Paul said in his first letter. So Paul had to write a second letter. What was it that Peter said about Paul in 2 Peter chapter 3? Can Paul be hard to understand sometimes? Yeah, they misunderstood him a little bit. They thought he meant that the Lord was coming to take them home any day now. So a bunch of them quit their jobs, sold their property, went and sat and had a picnic up on a mountaintop, said, here we are, Lord. Well, some of the bones may still be sitting up there for all we know, but did Paul mean that Messiah was going to return any moment in Paul's lifetime? No. But when he said, then we who are alive, he assumed that meant that those people he was talking to and himself. But what did he mean when he said, then we who are alive and remain? It means believers. And when the appointed time came, if you remember in Hosea chapter 6, it told us there'd be 2,000 years between the first and second coming. So they should have known he didn't mean 2,000 years ago the Lord was coming. How long has it been since the first coming? It's been about 2,000 years. Does that give us reason to be looking and watching and hoping and waiting? Oh, you bet it does. So let's pick up in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11, which says, Therefore, uh uh-oh, you can't start with therefore. Therefore what? In verses 8 and 9, he's talking about The judgment of God and those that are going to be taken in God's vengeance and judgment and cast in a lake of fire. So because judgment day is coming and we don't want to get into that lake of fire. Oh, I didn't ask. Let me see a show of hands. How many want to burn forever? Okay, I didn't think so. So therefore, we also pray always for you. Why would Paul be praying for this small group of believers that he left behind in Thessaloniki? Because they were not exactly learned people. He's praying that they will stay strong in their faith. Are they getting any persecution from their families, friends, and the surrounding communities? You betcha they are. How many of you think are getting patted on the back by the rest of the world going, hey, good for you for finding the true path? Nah, wasn't happening. It says that our God could count you worthy of this calling. What does it mean for God to count you worthy? It means that you stay strong in your faith. That you hang on to your belief that there is a God in heaven. It's not you. That he gave his instructions to the world to be followed. And sin is only begotten son to die for us. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But then once you've been saved by faith, how should you walk? Do you continue to walk in sin? Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Ain't no way. And 
Not only that God would count you worthy of this calling, that is of your faith in Messiah, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness, and the work of faith with power, means what? To fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that he finds you worthy to take home when the time comes. How many of you would like to spend an eternity with the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth in a city whose streets are paved with gold? Yes, you and me too. To be joint heirs with the Messiah. What's the Messiah the heir of? Everything. Talk about an honor, a joy, and a pleasure. Why would you give that up for some earthly sin? And verse 12 goes, that, you know what that means, right? There's a reason that we need to be worthy and that we need to walk uprightly before God. That the name of our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, may be glorified in you. The words Lord, Yeshua, and the Messiah, which of those are adjectives? None. They're all nouns. So when it says our Lord, it's talking about the same Lord that we see from Genesis to Malachi in the Old Testament. The same Lord who gave the commandments at Mount Sinai. The same Lord who brought the children through the Red Sea. Fed us with manna in the wilderness. Water from a rock. That Lord is Yeshua, which means salvation. He is the one who saves yesterday, today, and forever. We just sang Kadosh, 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 Holy, 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 to the one who was, who is, and who is to come. In Revelation 22, who is that one? That's our Messiah, Yeshua. He was, he came in human form, is crucified and buried, but then resurrected. He is, and he always will be. That he may be, he is the Messiah. That's what the word Christ here is, is Messiah. The anointed one, the one promised all the way from Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. That the name of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah may be glorified in you. What is the name of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah? Yeshua. And you in him. That he may be glorified in you and you may be glorified in him. Do you glorify the Lord by walking in sin? By treading in darkness? By teaching others to turn away from their faith? No. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Wait a minute. Aren't we saved by works? No. It's only by the grace of God. So doesn't he owe us salvation if we repent? No, he does not. The wages of sin is death, and we've all sinned. So God's grant and gift of eternal life is exactly that. It's a, it's a gift according to the mercy and grace of our God and Father. Now, how does chapter 2 begin? Now. So is this a change in topic? No. Which means we're still talking about judgment day and how to avoid the lake of fire through life eternal through the grace and mercy of our Lord and Savior. So now brethren, what does the word brethren mean? Who's he talking to? To believers. Concerning the coming of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah and our gathering together to him, we ask you. But first, let's break that one down.
This letter explains things in the first letter. What gathering together and coming of the Lord was discussed in 1 Thessalonians? The rapture and the resurrection. So this chapter is going to refine their understanding of that future event. If it were not for the rapture and the resurrection, what would our faith be worth? If we die and pass out of this world and that's it, we just decompose and there's nothing in the future, what would salvation be? It would be worth a salvation from what? So now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, that's talking about the rapture. Coming for the believers. And our gathering together to him, we ask you. That phrase, our gathering together to him, is a word in Greek called episunagoge. Episunagoge. It's only used twice in the entire Bible. The first time is here, and the second time is in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. We'll start in verse 4, 24, sorry, to make sure that we get the context, because, you know, I hate to start in the middle of a sentence. Unless the sentence goes on for three pages, in which case, well, that's different. So Hebrews 10, 24, are we there? And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. What's it mean to consider one another? It's to encourage one another, to lift each other up. Encourage us for love and good works. <laughs> Messiah said, if you love me, comma, keep my commandments. Keeping the commandments are the good works being referred to here. So don't let people be misled into thinking that because Messiah was crucified, buried, and resurrected, now it's okay to walk in sin, because it's not. So verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. There's that episunagoge. The assembling of ourselves together. This is talking about what? Coming together at Shabbat for what purpose? To learn about the scripture and to praise and worship the Lord. So our catching away, our being brought together with the Lord in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 1 is about our gathering together to the Lord to worship him, to praise him, to show him our love, just as we do each Shabbat. It says, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What day? As you see the day of the Lord approaching, he says, do not depart from the synagogue. That's what episunagoge is, is the synagogue. Synagogue is the word for synagogue. What's it mean, as is the manner of some? Were there some believers that had left the synagogue and said, we don't want to worship with them. We don't want to study the scriptures with them. Paul said, hey, no, no. You stay in the synagogue. You study together. You learn together. You encourage each other. You teach each other. If there are people in the synagogue who don't believe, what do you do? You teach them to believe. Exactly. So go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, that's his coming to gather us home in the rapture and the resurrection and our gathering together to him. To him means what? 
Is he coming to us or are we going to him? We're going up to meet him in the air. Is that not what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? Let's turn back and look. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead of Messiah will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. That is the gathering together that Paul's talking about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Why would the young believers want to know more about the rapture and the resurrection? Were they being heavily persecuted by Rome and by Greek society? You bet. So what is the goal? Why do we endure the persecutions and tribulations of this world? It's for the life that is to come, right? For life eternal. That's the goal. That's the carrot at the end. That's the light at the end of the tunnel that's not an oncoming train. So verse 2 says, Not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Messiah had come. Hmm. Somebody has been writing false, fictitious, and phony letters saying, oh, mm, day of the Lord came, you missed it. Darn, how about that? You were left behind. And your loved ones who died as believers, well, they, they missed it too. What is, why does Paul say this? Are there false teachers even back in the first century trying to mislead people? Why would Satan want to do that? Doesn't Satan rejoice when people get saved? Quite the opposite, huh? He's trying to keep people from being saved. He's trying to destroy their hope, destroy their faith, get them to go back to the pagan temples in which they grew up. So not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled. What does it mean, shaken in mind? To get confused. Or troubled, that is to be discouraged either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us. What's he mean, as if from us? They were forged letters. Yeah, Paul didn't send them. The disciples with him didn't send them. As though the day of Messiah had come. Is there a difference between the day of Christ, the day of Messiah, the day of the Lord? No, those are all the same thing. How long is the day of the Lord? Thousand years. But what does it begin with? The rapture and a resurrection. How many people do you see on YouTube teaching that we are in the tribulation period right now? Have you seen any? There's lots out there teaching that we're in the tribulation. We're at the point of the sixth seal. Really? How many people on earth have died by the time of the sixth seal? Billions. Over two billion people will have died by then. Because of the wars and the plagues and the famines. We have wars and plagues and famines today, but not like is coming in the future. In verse 2, when Paul says, as though the day of Messiah had come, is Paul saying the day of Messiah will never come? Just that it has not yet come. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to wait. We're supposed to watch. We're supposed to lovingly anticipate the coming. 
How many of you are listening for the trumpet call? Yeah. Is it coming soon? I think so. Did it come yesterday? No, it didn't. But how about this September? Ask me in October. Okay. Verse 3, let no one deceive you. When Paul says let no one deceive you, it means people are deceiving you. Don't listen to them. Let no one deceive you by any means. That is not by letter, not by speech, not by talk, not by anything. For that day, what day? The day of the Lord will not come unless, that actually means until, the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. So let's take a look at that day, the day of the Lord. Let's go to Philippians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So Philippians chapter 1, verse 10. We'll start in verse 9 so we don't break the continuity of the sentence. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Meaning what? That you love properly according to the commandments that you learn the scriptures and learn to walk in them. That you may approve the things that are excellent. That you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Messiah. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness. Which are by Yeshua the Messiah to the glory and praise of God. So if he wants us to be filled with the fruits of righteousness. What does that mean? He wants us to walk uprightly until when? Until the day of Messiah comes. That you stand before the Lord in judgment as that spotless bride. The one that 2 Peter chapter 3 describes as, let's go look. Without spot or blemish. Oh, I gave it away. Well, let's go look anyway. 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 14. Therefore, beloved... Looking forward to these things, that is, to the day of the Lord. Who looks forward to the day of the Lord, the saved or the unsaved? The saved. Be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. That's the same thing, without spot and blameless. Paul just simply called it in Philippians, without offense. Let's go back to Philippians, to chapter 2, verse 16. Holding fast the word of life. What is the word of life? That's the scriptures. That's every word that came out of the mouth of God. So that I may rejoice in the day of Messiah. That I have not run in vain or labored in vain. To rejoice makes you think of which of the appointed times. Feast of Tabernacles called the season of our joy. It teaches about the establishment of the Messianic kingdom on earth. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. What is this Philippians address? Philippians chapter 2, verse 16. 
holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Messiah. But I have not run in vain or labored in vain. So if he has run in vain, that means what? He did not hold fast to the word of life. He did not hold his faith strong. He did not abide in Messiah. He didn't stay in the scriptures. Are there people out there that want you to put aside the scriptures and follow doctrine that comes from other sources? Don't let them do that to you. Do not let them do that to you. Back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Let no one deceive by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. See that phrase, falling away? We've had a lot of discussion about that before. I want to add some things to it. I want to share my screen for those out there and go to meeting land. And for the rest of you, I'll simply read it to you. Because everybody knows what the word apostasy means, right? It means turning away from the true doctrine of the church. That word does not go back to Bible times, apostasy. The Greek word here is apostasia, from which they made the English word apostasy. But the word began to be used in the mid-14th century, that is in the 1300s. In the Middle Ages, it didn't exist before that. The 1300s, was that before or after the Protestant Revolution? Before. So the church, except for small groups here or there, was what? Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism, as well as Greek Orthodoxy, their doctrine is amillennialism. Amillennialism. They don't believe that there's a millennium kingdom coming. They don't believe there will be a messianic kingdom on earth coming. They believe that it's already here, that the Pope is Messiah on earth, leading that kingdom of peace, love, and harmony. That's why there's no war. That's why there's no hatred. There's no sin in this world. Yeah, you're looking at me like, yeah, we know better than that. But if the doctrine of the church as a whole is amillennialism, that means they don't believe in a rapture. So they have to explain this verse somehow. So they create the new word apostasy, give it a definition, and then we in the church today think, well, it's always meant that. But it has not. What the word apostasia means is a rapid and radical departure from one place to another. It can be a doctrinal positional shift or it can be a physical shift. It's the Greek word 646 for anybody who wants to look it up. Let's start in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and see what this apostasia means. Look back at the old Wycliffe and Tyndall Bibles. They didn't use the word apostasy, did they? What did they say? Departure. The departure. And everybody up to that point understood it as the rapture, those that are outside of the Catholic influence and amillennialism. So, will there be an apostasy? The answer is yes. That's why I want to look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. So those who say there will be an apostasy, they're not wrong 
It's just not what this verse is teaching. If you look at 1 Timothy 4, 1, it says, Now the Spirit, what spirit? Holy Spirit. Holy spirit expressly says, what does expressly mean? It's, it's true. It's exactly what the Lord's telling us. That in latter times, some will depart from the faith. That word depart means what? Means they were in the faith and they have walked away from it. The way we would use apostasy today. Giving heed to deceiving spirits. Why did they walk away? Because they listened to false teachers. And doctrines of demons. To doctrines that do not come from God. According to... to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, what should our doctrine be based upon? Scripture. Scripture. That which came out of the mouth of God, not that which comes out of the mouth of demons. Verse 2 says, Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry. Is that Judaism? Does Judaism forbid to marry? No. You know right away, that's not what that's talking about. Were there groups called Gnostics back in the first century that forbid people to marry? Yes, there were. And commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Here's where the world says, oh, this is talking about you, you messianics. That you won't eat pigs. Pigs are foods which God created to be received. Really? It's not food. In Leviticus 11, God tells us specifically it's not food. So when it says, from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth, what is the truth? The truth is the Torah, Psalm 119, verse 142. So the ascetic Gnostics not only forbid marrying, but they also forbid eating anything that is pleasurable. How many of you like a nice T-bone steak? Can't have it. How many of you like ice cream? Can't have it. Chocolate? Can't have it. Kale? You can have it, okay? Because nobody likes kale. They just eat it because it's good. I don't know. Verse 14, yeah, parsley. For every creature of God is good, but it doesn't say every creature of God is food. If you read Genesis 1, what of God's creation was good? All of it, every bit of it. So the pigs are good, they're just not food. They're here as garbage disposals. How many of you have a garbage disposal at home and every night you open it up and eat from it. Uh, no, you wouldn't do that, right? You're looking at me like, oh, that's sick. Well, to eat from God's garbage disposals is just as sick. In Leviticus 11, God says, if you eat those things that he calls unclean, it makes you abominable in his sight. How many of you want to stand before the Lord on Judgment Day and have him say you're an abomination? No. No. We read in, last, in Ephesians last night, don't even let uncleanness be named among you. Don't let it even be rumored that you're engaged in it, right? Yeah. But you know, verse 4 says, every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving. And do you see the period at the end of that after thanksgiving? Because there isn't one. You got to read verse 5. For because it is sanctified. Sanctified means set apart unto God, declared to be clean. By the word of God, that's Leviticus 11. And prayer, that is you bless God for it. No one ever mentions that, that part. No, they leave that part out, don't they? they? Out completely. Yeah. 
take half a sentence and make a doctrine out of it. That's not a good thing. Um, if apostasy was what Paul meant, go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If the falling away in verse 3 is apostasy from good doctrine, then it's not a sign. In a garden of Eden, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. That was apostasy. Was that the sign that the second coming is here? No. How about the scribes and the Pharisees teaching people to break God's commandments? That was apostasy. Go back to the 4th century with the Catholic decrees that forbid keeping the Sabbath and required you to eat pork and forbid keeping Passover, etc. That was apostasy. How long has apostasy been going on? From the very beginning. So that can't be the sign Paul's talking about. Because it existed in his day, before Paul's day, and after Paul's day. So... Let me read to you from a handout. I've given it to you before. If you want it again, just let me know. How many of you know Tommy Ice? Yeah, he's a very prolific writer. And he quotes 2 Thessalonians 2.3 and says, I believe that there's a strong possibility that 2 Thessalonians 2.3 is speaking of the rapture. What do I mean? Some pre-tribulationists like myself think that the Greek noun apostasia, usually translated apostasy, is a reference to the rapture and should be translated departure as it was all the way up until the 1611 King James edition. As Daniel mentioned, the Bibles in English before that used the word departure, not apostasy. It says, Thus this passage would be saying that the day of the Lord will not come until the rapture that comes before it. If apostasia is a reference to a physical departure, then 2 Thessalonians 2.3 is strong evidence for pre-tribulationism. And then, like I would normally do, now let's look at the word apostasia and see what it meant in Paul's day, not how you would think of it today. So the Greek noun apostasia is only used twice in the New Testament. In addition to 2 Thessalonians 2.3, it occurs in Acts 21.21. 21. So let's go turn to Acts 21.21. 21, 21. Acts 21, verse 21. Okay, we're back. Ready? Acts 21, 21 says, But they have all been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. That word forsake is apostasia. So it says that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake apostasia Moses. The word is a Greek compound word of apa, which means from, and esteemi, which means stand. So it means to depart from the place where you were standing. That's literally the meaning of apostasia. You depart from the place where you were standing. 
doesn't as the core meaning of away from or departure. The Liddell and Scott Greek lexicon defines apostasia first as defection or revolt, then secondly as departure or disappearance. Gordon Lewis explains how the verb from which the noun apostasy is derived supports the basic meaning of departure in the following. The verb may mean to move spatially. What does spatially mean? From one place to another. There's little reason then to deny that the noun can mean such a spatial removal or departure. Since the noun is only used one other time in the New Testament of apostasy from Moses, we can hardly conclude that his biblical meaning is necessarily determined. Let me tell you what he means by that. Think back to the binding of Isaac. Do you remember? Abraham took Isaac up on a mountain, was about to slay him when the angel said what? Abraham, Abraham, don't, don't, don't do that. And Abraham looked behind him and there was a ram caught in the thicket. That word behind, achar, means behind in space, that is literally behind him, but also afterward in time, so in the future. Which is why in John 8, the Lord says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it. So the word can mean behind or in the future, and in that case it meant both. So his point here is just because there was a ram behind him does not mean that he didn't see Messiah in the future as Messiah said he did in John chapter 8. So you have to be careful if there's only one occurrence of a word to say this is all it can mean. That's his point. He says the verb is used 15 times in the New Testament. So the noun is only used twice, but the verb is used 15 times. Of these 15, only three have anything at all to do with the departure from the faith. The word is used for departing from iniquity, from ungodly men, from the temple, from the body, and from persons, meaning it's used in many different ways. It means to remove yourself from where you used to be. Okay, that's enough of that handout. Let's go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. And see, I believe the correct meaning is this is talking about the rapture because Paul's explaining what he wrote about in 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, did he write about the great departure that comes at the end of days from the faith? No, that's in 2 Timothy. In 1 Thessalonians, he writes about the rapture and the resurrection. So for that day will not come unless or until the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. The son of man is Messiah. The man of sin, that's the false Messiah. Antichrist or beast of Revelation 13. Why is he called that? Let's go back to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Oops, I got a question out here. Let me see. And those instructions in righteousness that leads to the fruit of righteousness. 2 Timothy 3, 14 plus. Okay, right. So we're going back to Daniel chapter 7. About the little horn, which is another term for the false messiah, antichrist, or beast of Revelation 13. He's called many names. None of which you want to be called yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So... 
Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. He, that false Messiah, shall speak pompous words. What are pompous? They're arrogant, prideful, blasphemous, against the Most High. That's against God. Shall persecute the saints of the Most High. The saints are those who what? Keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Yeshua. Revelation 14, 12. He doesn't like them keeping God's commandments. It offends him that they keep God's commandments. He wants them to stop it. And shall intend to or try to change the times. That's the appointed times in Leviticus 23. And the law, the Torah. He doesn't want you to keep God's commandments. He wants you to keep his man-made commandments instead. That's why he's called the man of sin. Because what is sin? Sin is lawlessness. He teaches a message of lawlessness. I've read too many Jewish commentaries that say that could only be describing Jesus of Nazareth. Because doesn't the church teach that he came and abolished God's commandments? That's what the false Messiah is supposed to do. So that's led to a lot of Jewish people rejecting Messiah because they're being taught wrong things. Go to Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Messiah describes the whole group that believe they're on the path to heaven. And most are on the path to the lake of fire and think they're on the path to heaven. Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. That's the lake of fire. And there are many who go in by it. They think they're on the road to heaven. Why would they think that? Verse 14, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets, false teachers. Whenever a preacher or teacher comes up and tells you that the commandments of God have been destroyed, they're not for you to follow anymore, are they following Daniel 7.25? Is that the spirit that's leading them? According to the scriptures. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Does God want people to go into the lake of fire? No, he wants them all to be saved. So look in 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 5 tells us the problem. For this they willingly forget. Let's go to verse 7. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word, that is the word of God that established the heavens and the earth 6,000 years ago, are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. That word ungodly means lawless. Those who treat the law of God as if it is void. Verse 8, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What's that next word? But. 
The day of the Lord will come as the thief in the night. Isn't that what 1 Thessalonians 5 was about, the thief in the night? Who gets caught off guard like the thief in the night? They, not you. The ones that don't keep the feasts and festivals don't understand God's plan as expressed in Leviticus 23. Then go to Revelation 17. Revelation 17. Verse 15. Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. The harlot refers to the false religious system that leads people away from God, teaching them they're on the path to heaven when they're really on the path to the lake of fire. Where is that false religious system? Peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues meaning around the world. Mystery Babylon. Mystery Babylon. Mm. Okay, back to Second Thessalonians. Chapter 2. In verse 3, the man of sin cannot be revealed until after the rapture and the resurrection. Why? We'd be going, there he is. Let, let me show you in the scripture about this man. And we would keep the world from falling at the man's feet. He's called the man of sin because of Daniel 7.25. But why is he then called the son of perdition? He's doomed to destruction. And where does he want to take you? He wants to take you with him. How many of you want to go with him? None of us. You have a question back there? Nope. Okay. Verse 4. Who... This who is, that man is sin, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. you remember those blasphemous words in Daniel chapter 7? Yeah, this is the man. He cannot stand for anyone or anything to be worshipped but himself. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So he is going to go into the rebuilt temple. He's going to sit on a throne in the rebuilt temple and say, I am your God, world worship me. And if somebody did that today, what would you and I be doing? Don't take the mark. Don't bow down to that man. Let me show you who he is. He's a not a good man. Let's go to Revelation 13 and read what it says about this man. Revelation 13 is why I call him the beast of Revelation 13. Because, well, he's called the beast there. And why is he called the beast there? 
Because in the book of Daniel, there are several beasts, and the beasts refer to the nation and the king who rules over the nation. So he rules over the kingdom of the false messiah. Revelation 13.1, Then I stood on the sand of the sea. Does the sea indicate Israel or the Gentiles? The Gentiles. And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, so he comes out of the Gentile world. Having seven heads and ten horns. That's from Daniel, isn't it? Yeah, that's from Daniel. Who tore up three of the heads? The little horn. That is the one that is described in Daniel chapter 7 verse 25 as trying to do away with the feasts and festivals in the Torah commandments. And on his horns, ten crowns, and on his heads, a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Those three beasts indicated kingdoms from Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, right? So these are the kingdoms that came before Rome. So this beast comes out of the Roman Empire, but has tentacles reaching back into Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And who's the dragon? Satan. Boy, Revelation 12 was all about that dragon, wasn't it? And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. Everybody stop. All the movies show the false messiah getting shot in the head and coming back to life. Since I saw one of his heads. That's talking about one of the nations over which he rules. Of the ten nations. The man doesn't literally have seven heads. And they take target practice on one of them. And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon, that Satan who gave authority to the beast. So when they worshipped the beast, who were they really worshipping? Satan. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who's like the beast? Who's able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. He was given authority to continue for 42 months. That's three and one half years. It's exactly three and one half years to the day. So it's exactly half of the tribulation period. So where are we in the tribulation period at Revelation 12 and 13? Right at the midpoint, right in the middle. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted him to make war with the saints and overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That is so important. Will those who have been saved by faith, sealed by God, accept the worship of the false Messiah? The answer is no, they will not. How do you think that's going to make the false Messiah feel? When there's a group out there saying, uh-uh, we're not going to worship you. Will he say, well, that's okay, let's all be tolerant? No, he goes to make war with them to kill them all. At that point, 
for those that were not saved when the rapture and resurrection came, who've gotten saved during the tribulation period, they're going to have to make a very hard choice. Mm-hmm. Will I renounce my faith, take the mark of the beast and live, or will I lose my physical life to gain life eternal, right? Mm-hmm. How hard a decision will that be? Yeah. Especially take parents with young children. You think the false messiah is going to let the children live or is he going to kill them first? You're going to repent? Turn away from God? Come my way? Nope. There goes your first child. Now how about your second? How hard would that be? Remember in the story of the Maccabees, they recount the story of Hannah who had eight sons. And they put to death each of the eight sons in order one after the other trying to get her to renounce God and to embrace the gods of the Greeks. And because she had the faith and the courage to stand strong, even to the point of death, her name is still talked about over 2,000 years later. But there aren't a thousand Hannahs written about, are there? Hmm. We would have turned right now to Daniel 7, verse 25, but we just did, so let's go to Matthew 24, 15. The events of Matthew 24, 15 are recorded for us in the book of Daniel. They took place at the time that Hanukkah came into the world. Matthew 24, 15. My belief is that the battle of Gog and Magog, which is where all Israel gets saved, is about three years in the tribulation period. And that one month before the midpoint is when the abomination of desolation gets set up. And that's what we read about Matthew 24, 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's an idolatrous image set up in the temple by the false messiah. Spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. What is the holy place? It's a room of the temple. It's the first room in the temple building where there's the menorah, the table of showbread, the incense altar, etc. So a place where people can see. It says, whoever reads, let him understand. And let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So at the battle of Gog and Magog, all Israel gets saved. Do they then instantly know the New Testament that Messiah said to flee when you see the bomb? No, they don't. So I think they have five months to study the New Testament, to read the words of Messiah, and to learn what to do when they see that abomination, desolation go up. Then they've got to run. Because a month later, that's when we read about In Revelation chapter 12, Satan gets kicked out of heaven and dwells the false Messiah and he goes into the temple to sit on the throne to rule and reign. At that point, it's too late to try and flee. Back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 5. How do we know? Paul's explaining things that he's already taught them. Verse 5 says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? 
So these things refer to the rapture and resurrection which Paul taught in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Because there's no place in 1 Thessalonians where Paul teaches about the second coming of the Lord with the battle of Armageddon and the establishment of the kingdom, is there? No, because they didn't need to know that at that point. So let's go back to 2 Thessalonians. Verse 6. And now you know what is restraining. Restraining whom? The man of sin and the son of perdition. Is that which is restraining waiting on apostasy? If you think so, turn to Revelation chapter 3. Or let's start in 2. We'll do the short version. Revelation chapter 2. Do you see in verse 6? But this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans' doctrine was called antinomianism. It's a long word, but easy to spell because it's spelled just like it sounds. Antinomianism. What does anti mean? Against. Nomianism is the law. So the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is that when Yeshua was crucified, buried, and resurrected, the law was done away with. Law didn't apply anymore. You can go sin all you want. God doesn't care anymore. And what does Messiah say? Which I also hate. And he says it again in verse 15. But let's start in 14 because 15 begins with thus. Verse 14 says, But I have a few things against you because you have here those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is go ahead and perform these things that are sacrificed to idols. Commit sexual immorality. It doesn't matter anymore. And what does the Lord say? I hate that. I hate that. So go back to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 6, and now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. What is restraining are the believers filled with the Holy Spirit bringing light to the world because the deeds of the false Messiah are darkness. And what does darkness hate? The light. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Start in verse 13. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 13. Referring to those who believed in him, it says, You are the salt of the earth. What does salt do? Salt is a preservative, right? Salt keeps things from spoiling, from rotting. 
But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Meaning if we stop being the salt of the earth, what's going to keep the earth from decaying and rotting? Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. But what if we stop being the light? Then what comes? The darkness. So we are the salt. We are the light. We are what is keeping the false Messiah from being revealed before his time. So verse 16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Then when he says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. What do the Nicolaitans teach? He came to destroy the law and the prophets. He said, I hate that. Let's go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're up to verse 7. Up to verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness. What does the word mystery mean? A deeper meaning of verses that you already know. The mystery of lawlessness is hidden in plain sight. Is already at work. When's it already at work? 2,000 years ago. And 4,000 before that. So apostasy is not the sign. Apostasy is lawlessness at work. It's already at work. Only he, then notice the asterisk. In Hebrew, it can be translated as he or it. And that's why they put the asterisk, because they were not sure which way it should be translated. Should be it. It refers to the believers, the group of believers, that called out assembly. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So the church, the called out body of believers, those true believers in Messiah, phrase it however you want. Keep the false Messiah at bay until the rapture and the resurrection. But I want to take a look at that word lawlessness in a little more detail. The word is anomeia. A-N-O-M-I-A. Anomia. And it's Greek word 458. 458. And it's used in the scripture to, to define the condition of being without law. Either because of being ignorant of it or because of violating it. And also it means contempt and violation of the law, iniquity and wickedness. It's a Greek word, so it's only in the New Testament and it's only used 15 times in the King James Version. So I thought it might be worth looking at at least some of those 15 times. So that we understand the significance of that word lawlessness. And when a man is described as the man of lawlessness, it tells you that he is teaching the doctrine of Hasatan. Let's go back to Matthew 7. You know these verses by heart. 
Matthew 7, we'll read 21 to 23, but the key verse is 23. This is the one that contains the word anomia. Matthew 7, 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, what day? The day of the Lord, judgment day. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? Then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Anomia, that which is contrary to the law of God. It says, either because you're ignorant of it and didn't know what to do, or because you knew what to do and said, I ain't doing it anyway. Let's go to Matthew 13, 41, where the word is next used. Matthew 13, verse 41. The Son of Man, who's that? That's Messiah. Will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth, as the Son in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So those who practice lawlessness are the opposite of the righteous. And what does Messiah himself say in these red words will happen to those who practice lawlessness? They will cast into the furnace of fire. Could you expand a little bit, please? I don't understand the difference between someone who is completely ignorant, never heard the law, and people who absolutely knew the law walked away from it in defiance of it. So it's, how can that be the same word? Ignorance of the law plus defiance of the law is the same word? Uh, yeah, it is. According to the dictionary here, the dictionary, if you think back to Sodom and Gomorrah, had they heard the preaching of the commandments of God? Yes. They had? Yes. Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, I don't know. I was, you know, I was telling them you, you guys were sitting. Was there? Lot went there, right. He didn't explain to them. He wasn't there to teach them or show them anything about the word. He just was undercover. It, the scripture doesn't tell us that he was there as a preacher of the word, teaching the Ten Commandments and the other commandments. Okay. All right. We will just press on from here. Matthew 20. Wait a minute. I wanted to question because I don't understand it. So, okay. So, so Jesus is telling them that the No, it, well, I as understand. A, in, in, in the law, you still, As a lawyer, it's not at all strange to me because that is the doctrine of the law: is that ignorance of the law is no excuse. So if you are okay, so they, out, if, what's that? In in English, I mean, I understand anomia is is Greek, but is there a difference in English 
I'm surprised that anomia is the only word that's used for ignorance of the law and absolutely run a turn in something that you know. Yeah. What anomia means is you have acted contrary to the law of God. It doesn't require that you knew you were doing it, just that you did it. Yeah, it is kind of tough. I understand. Understand it's kind of tough. Okay. Okay. Matthew 23, verse 28. In? Um, yes, The Evan. thought does occur to me that Jesus says at one point, which may be pertinent here, that those who, or uh, it may not have been Jesus that said it, um, those who knew what to do and didn't do it, uh, or, or those that didn't know what to do and didn't do it, will be beaten with few strokes. Those who knew what to do and didn't do it will be beaten with many. Yeah, that but might suggest that there is a sort of, um, uh, and James says, you know, that uh, um, those who teach will be held to a higher responsibility true. than the rest. Yeah, but so, notice that those who didn't know got beaten with few strikes, but they still got beaten. Yes, yeah. Both but groups less. still got beaten. So people that say, I didn't know that Sunday wasn't the Sabbath. Why don't they know? All four of the Gospels say Messiah rose the day after the Sabbath. So if he arose on Sunday and it was the day after the Sabbath, then to say I didn't know would simply mean I didn't study enough to know. But, at any rate, yes, the same word, it means that which is contrary to the commandments of God. It doesn't speak to animus, just whether the conduct was contrary to the word of God or not. So Matthew twenty-three twenty-eight. Here's another place where that word is used. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Talking, of course, about the scribes and the Pharisees. They appeared to the people to be the most righteous of people. But they were not. Matthew 24, 12. I've heard this verse talked about at least four or five different times just this week alone. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And every preacher who talked about this verse this week used it as people just aren't obeying the government's laws anymore. People are rioting in the streets and they're killing each other. But this word lawlessness is talking about being contrary to the law of God. And verse... 12 of Matthew 24 takes place during the tribulation period when the man of lawlessness is trying to get everyone to stop keeping God's commandments. And as they stop keeping God's commandments, if the love of God is to keep us, what happens when they don't? Then the love grows cold. And if the love grows cold toward God, how does it grow toward other people? Just as cold. Romans chapter 4, verse 7. 
Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Which two words or phrases are parallel there, meaning the same thing? Lawless deeds and sins. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. What's it mean to impute? To charge it on their account, to hold them responsible for it not forgiven Romans 6 19 Romans 6 19 I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness that is before you got saved So now, once you've been saved, present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Because without holiness, comma, no one will see God. So what's opposite here? Lawlessness is the opposite of righteousness. Second Corinthians six fourteen. I don't know how you can read all these scriptures and walk away from it and say we're not supposed to keep God's commandments anymore. Even if I used to believe that because I was taught that and I believed what I was taught. Didn't make it right. 2 Corinthians 6.14, you guys know these words, you could probably quote them to me, but it says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship is righteousness with lawlessness. That word lawlessness is anomia. Can any deed that's contrary to God's law be a righteous deed? No, because they're opposites. Does the scripture ever tell us that we should walk in righteousness? Yes, many times. Does it ever tell us we should walk in lawlessness? Never. Yep, 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 is the next time it applies, but that's the verse we're studying, so go to 2, not 2 anything, go to Titus. Boy, we don't get to go to Titus very often, do we? But you guys know it's in the New Testament, right? Yep. All the T's are in alphabetical order in the New Testament, so it comes right after 2 Timothy. Titus chapter 2. The key verse is 14, but we'll have to start in 11 to not start in the middle of a sentence. It says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. 
looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. What do they call Yeshua here? Our great God and Savior. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. And purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. So how many lawless deeds does Messiah want us to continue walking in? None. Remember when he said, go and sin no more? What do you think he meant? Go and sin no more. Yep, I thought it was pretty clear there. Hebrews 1.9. Just turn a page, a couple pages. Hebrews 1.9. Referring to Messiah. You, Messiah, Yeshua, have loved righteousness and hated what? Lawlessness. Messiah loves righteousness. He hates lawlessness. So how should we walk in righteousness? Hebrews 8.12. Whoa, I have two comments out there or questions. Let's see. Yep. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. This is the new covenant. Let's start in verse 10. For this is the covenant, referring to the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, 31. That I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. The covenant is between God and who? The house of Israel or the commonwealth of Israel. If you tell me I've not been grafted into Israel, be careful. Because that means you're not participating in the new covenant either. I will put my laws, my Torah in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Does it say I will eliminate my laws? I'll abolish them. I'll fulfill them so they don't have to do them. No, it says, I will put them on their hearts and their minds. Verse 11, none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. That's anomia, their lawless deeds. I'll remember no more. You repent in faith and God will forgive you. Hebrews 10, 17. Referring again to the new covenant. Verse 17, then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. That is, once the sins have been atoned for, forgiven, removed, forgotten, then let them go. How many people get so wrapped up in their minds about the sins I've committed in the past that I think, God surely can't love me. 
God surely can't forgive me. When Messiah was dying on the tree, would he say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. God knows how to forgive. The last place is in 1 John 3, 4. 1 John 3, 4. And the word anemia is in here repeatedly, three times in this verse. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Hmm. Okay, back to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. got to quit listening to all those TV preachers saying that God doesn't want you to repent. He wants you to continue walking in sin because that shows just how gracious he can be. Isn't that Romans 6.1? What then shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Yes, ma'am. Go back to Hebrews 8. Okay. Same as yours, probably. Hebrews 8, 13 says, In that he says, a new covenant. That word for new is what? Kainos, a renewed covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. How many years has it been since Messiah was crucified, buried, and resurrected, little Hebrews is written. 30-some years? If Messiah's death had taken away the Old Covenant, it wouldn't say, is becoming obsolete. It would say, became obsolete and vanished away. So what he's trying to tell us is, in the Old Covenant, the commandments of God are written on tablets of stone. And people did it out of fear. Once you come into the new covenant, they're written on your heart, it means you're being obedient out of love. You no longer have to be forced to do it once you're in love. So people are moving from the old covenant to the new covenant. There's less and less people in the old covenant as more people get saved by faith. That's why it's growing old and becoming obsolete. Because people are entering into the new covenant. At the time Hebrews is written, more than half of Jerusalem had become believers. So yeah, they wrote it in a way to make you think what the church teaches, which is not the way the Greek really reads. I kind of think of it like at Mount, at Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai? When Moses went up and got tablets the first time, came back and he broke them because of the golden calf. God said, you know, he gave the conditions for the covenant again, but it was the same conditions. He gave the tablets of stone again. Moses had to cut them out this time and take them up, but he wrote the very same words. Yeah, he didn't come up with a new set of Right. Okay, they can't follow these, so let me come up with a new set. Right, the covenant was renewed. 
right? And that's the same thing here. And at the end of Deuteronomy, Israel again enters into the same covenant with the same commandments, the same rules and regulations. It was simply renewed. I like the way that in, in the book, Surviving Jericho. You like the way that in the book, Surviving Jericho, Jennifer Bennett wrote it as how? It was a different transmission. A different transmission, yeah. If you look at the phrase, the New Testament, in the New Testament, every time it's the New Testament, the word is refreshed or renewed. It's kainos, not neos. All right, back to 2 Thessalonians. But you're right, they intentionally wrote that in chapter 8 at the end to make you think that it's something different and the old has been abolished. The covenant is the set of promises, not the commandments. That's why it says in the New Testament that the law is written on your hearts and minds. Not a new law. It's the same Torah. But it's a new set of promises. In Exodus 19, Israel promised God we will be obedient. And they weren't. And when you get saved, you promise God I will be obedient. And if you're truly, if you're truly saved in the new covenant, the law is written upon your hearts and minds. It becomes your heart's desire to do it. You don't need to be threatened to do it. You want to do it. People will say to me, why do you have to keep the Sabbath? I say, your, your opinion is different from mine. I get to keep the Sabbath. I want to. It's meaningful to God. And therefore, it's meaningful to me. He said in the book of Exodus that it's the wedding ring. It's the sign that we worship the true and living God, that we are his children. I want to do that. Wayne? Yes, sir. In fact, if it's understood properly, that's always been the Jewish position. Because they talk about fulfilling the, uh, the mitzvot as a joy. Right. So that always, properly understood, it's always been that. Yeah. Uh, but then the legalists come along. But, um, you know, they will talk about, oh, I managed a, a mitzvah today. Uh, something happened and I was able to help. Yeah. You know, and it's a delight. It's not a, oh, dear, I had to carry this burden, which so many Gentiles seem to think Jews see it that way. If it's properly understood, yeah. it, it's a joy. An old adage that I've long heard and remembered is that when you hear the word law, Christians run from it, and Jews run to it. Absolutely. Yeah. If you're loving children of a loving father, do you want to obey or disobey your father? Okay. Back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But Pat's right. They could have written that a little more clearly. Verse 8 says, And then the lawless one, not a lawless one. There's a difference in biblical Hebrew between a and the. The lawless one. There's been lawless ones from the time of the Garden of Eden. But the lawless one is the one we're talking about that will, will um, confirm the covenant with many in Daniel 9.27. Will be the one to war against the saints in Daniel 7.25. And will attempt to change God's appointed times and the law. Which, by the way, if those had been abolished, why would he want to try and change them 
when he comes in the middle of the tribulation period. It wouldn't make any sense, would it? So, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. When does that take place? That's what? Armageddon, Revelation 19, verses 17 to 21. So let's go to Revelation 19. People say, why hasn't God dealt with Satan yet? Because it's not time yet. But boy, you don't want to be in his shoes. Come Revelation 19, 17, which says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. That is upon the bodies of those that are going to die at Armageddon. Susie, do you have a question? Oh, okay. Verse 18, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, there's the beast of Revelation 13, that false messiah or antichrist. The kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Man. In Revelation 16, we read that people are shaking their fist in God's face. But here they literally raise an army to try and keep Messiah from coming. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received a mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the swords, proceeded from the mouth of him and sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Think of what an honor it is to be the first two people in the lake of fire. You can pick out the very best beaches. Yeah, there aren't any beaches. They're going to sit there for a thousand years by themselves going, boy, did we choose poorly. Back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 9. The coming of the lawless one. That's the false messiah. Is according to the working of Satan. That is, he does the commands of Satan. He does try to keep people from God. With all power, signs, and lying wonders. Why didn't God tell us in Deuteronomy 13 that this was possible? Let's go back and look at what he said in Deuteronomy 13 when he said, don't believe it just because a miracle takes place. The false prophet of Revelation 13 is the ultimate and final fulfillment of Deuteronomy 13.1. What well, comes right before Deuteronomy 13.1? It says, Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. What does the false Messiah want to do? Exactly that. If there rises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, in Revelation 13, the false prophet calls down fire from heaven. Would that impress you? That would impress me. 
It says, And the sign of the wonder comes to pass in which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, i.e. the false Messiah and Satan behind him, which you've not known, and let us serve them. To serve them is to be obedient to them, to follow their commandments. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him. Keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and all fast to him. So the false prophet is going to do these great signs to persuade people that they should worship the false Messiah and take his mark. What happens if you take his mark? You're toast. Revelation 13 is where we read about the false prophet. In Revelation 13, 1, that was the false Messiah, but Revelation 13, beginning in verse 11, is the false prophet. He is a religious leader. People think he's a Christian leader. But he leads people to worship the false Messiah, not God. There's a huge ecumenical movement to make a one world religion that worships anyone but God. And you know, the thing is, like, it's been going on since the late 1800s. Been going on from, since the late 1800s, even before that, huh? Just trying to bring the world under one religion and say, oh, all paths lead to God. Yeah. When, Rep, yes, ma'am. Um, Yuval Noah Harari. Yes. Um, advocated that AI should rewrite the Bible and yep. come up with a correct religion. Right. You've all heard that, right? You've all Harari, who is Jewish, but supports who's that crazy guy up at the World Economic Forum? Schwab. Yeah, Schwab. That AI should rewrite the Bible to make it correct. Oh wow. Should fix it. Uh-huh. Take out all this nonsense and fix it. So we need to remember that when we're using online Bibles. Yeah, watch that when you're using online Bibles or when you buy a Bible at the store. These days you can buy one that says God's queer and etc. etc. There's all kinds of blasphemous Bibles out there. So don't think just because it says Holy Bible on the front that it really is. But thank you for that. Revelation 13 11. Then I saw another beast. This is the false prophet coming up out of the earth. That's Israel. It can end up being this Uval Harari. Who knows? And he had two horns like a lamb. That is, he appears to the world to be a Christian leader leading people to God. And spoke like a dragon. That is, his message really comes from Satan, not from God. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. Because at this point, the false Messiah is indwelt by Satan. The false prophet has to be in the presence of the false Messiah to perform these false miracles. And causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. That's the false Messiah, the first beast of Revelation 13. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. That's where I wrote my Bible. Go read Deuteronomy 13. 
He deceives those who dwell in the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. How many of you watch the Prophecy Update top news headlines that comes out about once a week on Rumble? If you haven't, watch this last one. There's a section in it, or one of the other Prophecy Updates that I watched about the same time, where they show the clip first, and the clip is a reporter in India giving the news. And when they get to the end of the clip, then the speaker comes on and says, now do you realize that that was not a live human being? That was AI. And you're going, but I thought it was a, a woman, a live woman. You couldn't tell the difference. You couldn't tell that it was an automated invention. And if you read verse 15, that's the kind of technology that had to be developed for verse 15. To make an image of the beast that should both speak and cause as many as not worship the image of the beast to be killed. I was literally dumbfounded when, when they came on and said that was not a live human being. I couldn't tell. Uh, verse 16. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. That no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Is the mark the name of the beast or the number of his name? No, they're three separate things. Verse 18 says, here's wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it's the number of a man. His number is 666. That's not what the Greek says. Nor is it what the Hebrew under the Greek says. It says his number is 660 and 6. Yeah, which is not the same as three sixes. And the three sixes that you see in the movie The Omen is not the mark of the beast. That's the number of his name. But by teaching people that's the mark of the beast, they're not going to recognize the mark because it's not a 666. What is it? The scripture doesn't say what it is. But you can have either one. The mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. We don't know what the name of the beast is, but we know that its letters will total up to 660 and 6. Okay, back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Verse 10. Chapter 2, thank you. Well, I, I'm looking at the clock and I'm starting to get a little jumbled. <laughs> Are we going to get through this all today? Probably not. Oh, let's see. Verse 10. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10. And with all unrighteous deception. What's another word for unrighteous? 
lawless. They want you to break God's commandments. I heard a preacher recently that I just had to laugh at. Not in his presence. was listening to it on YouTube. Who taught that if you're keeping the commandments of God, it's Satan that's motivating you to do that. Satan wants you to keep God's commandments. Where's that in here? What does Satan want you to do? He wants you to break them all. Verse 10, with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because, here's why they're perishing, because they did not receive the love of the truth. Psalm 119, verse 142, the Torah is the truth. Meaning, they don't want to keep God's commandments, so they're happy to break them. They're happy to be taught to break them, to be encouraged to break them. They did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. In other words, they don't want to repent. They don't want to walk uprightly before God. They want to continue in their sins and they want to be blessed and eternally happy anyway. They did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Does that mean we're saved by keeping commandments? No. We're saved by faith. And if we're saved by faith and the law is written on our hearts, it becomes our heart's desire to do them. We want to do them. That's why we walk in them. To show God our love. Because what is the love of God? 2 John chapter 5, verse 3. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. Thank you. Yes, I am. It's, I, I, uh, I got to quit that. It's keeping his commandments. Okay. Go back to Psalm 119, verse 142. Psalm 119, verse 142. Because there's somebody out there and go to meeting land who's never read this verse. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. And your law is truth. If righteousness is the opposite of lawlessness, this verse says that the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God will never, ever change. Otherwise, it's not an everlasting righteousness. It's a temporary righteousness. And your law is truth. Look at the same chapter, Psalm 119, verse 160. The entirety of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. If the Torah is truth, and the entirety of God's word is truth, can any of God's word contradict the Torah? The Torah is his word. It did come out of his mouth. If the entirety of your word, that is every single word that came out of God's mouth is truth, and the Torah which God spoke is truth, can they contradict each other? No. So by this we know that God's word never, ever will change. From here go to John 17, 17. When, yes, sir. When it says the entirety of your word, that was written before the New Testament. Correct. It certainly was. It includes everything. Can God contradict himself? Can he make himself a liar? No. 
John 17, we normally go to verse 3, right? This is eternal life that they may know you. But here we're for verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. What does sanctify mean? It means to set them apart unto God. Remove them from sin and take them to God. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. That's the same thing we read in Psalm 119 verse 160. It was true in Psalms. It's still true when John writes it. 1 John chapter 5 verse 6. First John chapter yeah, I keep looking at the clock. I have to quit that. First John chapter five, verse you guys say, no, no, please keep looking. Okay. This is important. First John chapter five, verse six. This is he, that's Messiah, who came by water and blood, Yeshua the Messiah, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. So the Torah is truth. The word of God is truth. The Holy Spirit is truth. So I have people tell me, the Holy Spirit told me I don't have to keep those commandments anymore. Yeah, it says test the spirits. They're not all from God. And then John 14, 6. John 14, 6. John 14, 6. Yeshua said to him, that is to doubting Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the Torah is truth. The word of God in its entirety is truth. The Holy Spirit is truth. And Yeshua is truth. Can they disagree with each other? They cannot. So what can we learn from that? He said, if God said, thou shalt not commit adultery, what's he not want us to do? Commit adultery. He told us, thou shalt not steal. He doesn't want us to steal. He said, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And now he doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to obey the Pope instead and do Sunday. Can't happen. So let's go back to 1 Thessalonians. No, 2 Thessalonians. It was 1 John. I'm getting it now. We still have two minutes. <laughs> Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Hey, we got the right chapter this time. Verses 11 and 12. When I want to look at the word adikia. Greek word 93. For this reason. What reason? They don't want to know the truth. They want to continue walking in sin. For this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. And that they all may be condemned, that is, into the lake of fire, who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Another word for unrighteousness? Lawlessness. So why will they all be condemned? They did not want to believe in the truth. Because that would mean they would have to stop their sin and they enjoy the sin too much. Mm. How many of you like ice cream? 
I like ice cream. Would you give up eternal life and burn in the lake of fire forever for a bowl of ice cream? No. What sin is worth an eternity in the lake of fire? The answer is none. How many years do we live on this earth? Some of you more than me, but I'm really old. You guys don't know what you're going to have to look forward to. Oh, my. And you don't know what it is. And I don't know what it is either because you're older than I am. But the few years we spend here on this earth, yes, it's nice here. Good things happen here. But compared to eternity in the new heavens and new earth, this place is a slum in comparison. Why would we want to give up eternity for a few years of earthly pleasure? What a bad decision. Let's go back to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Verse 27. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you. From where you're from, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, meaning lawlessness. Different word for lawlessness, adikia, but it still means the same thing. Living in sin rather than repenting and loving God with all your heart. Go to Romans 1.18. Oh, oh, I hate this one. But it's still in there, so we got to look at it. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. How many times does God tell us unrighteousness is bad in that one verse? What causes the wrath of God to be poured out on the unsaved in the tribulation period? It's because of their lawlessness. Their unrighteousness. Romans 2.8 Start in verse 5 though, so we start the sentence. See, I got a number one out there. Is it telling me I'm done? Okay. Can you send that link via email for the prophecy update? I guess I could, sure. So, Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, your unrepentant heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. What's the day of wrath? That's the tribulation period in the day of the Lord. And revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. What are his deeds? That's his works. That's what he did. Did he follow the commandments or didn't he? Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, what's coming? Indignation and wrath. 
One more verse, and then I'll look at the clock again. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6. Another instance of adikia. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. If truth is the opposite of iniquity, then we're talking about the truth being Torah. They need to read this verse. Lawlessness brings the wrath of God. If you want to avoid the wrath of God, avoid lawlessness. And we'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. Did I say say it wrong again? Okay. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Yeah, bring your Bibles. I'll tell you next time.